0: So far, if we were to summarize, as we've been in the book of Philippians, if we were going to summarize what we've read so far, I think you could say it is a call to unity through cruciformity. That Paul has called the church of Philippi and us to unity in Christ by dying to ourselves. Paul has said, hey, here's some ways I've been denying myself. Paul has said here's some ways I'm taking my eyes off of myself and I'm placing my vision on what's best for you and what's best for the mission that Jesus has given to all of us. Paul has said, here are some ways that Christ himself, the preeminent one, denied himself, not looking out for his own interests, but the interests of others. He took on the form of a servant and obeyed even to the death on a cross. And he's given some very practical, Paul has given some very practical implications of how this plays out. He says it plays out by doing nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, and that this plays out by shutting down, grumbling, and complaining. It plays out by considering others more significant than ourselves. It plays out by looking to the interest of others rather than the interests of ourselves. This call to crucify our flesh. Deny ourselves just like Jesus. That's kind of what we have been talking about and reading from Paul's letter to the church in Philippi so far. And then after all of that, he gives one more final case of two more faithful servants of Christ who have also modeled this self-denial for the sake of the gospel and the sake of others. So let's go to Philippians chapter 2, the end of Philippians chapter 2, and we're going to read about two more pictures of people who, again, have looked not unto their own interests, but the interests of others. Starting in verse 19, Paul says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send to you Timothy, or send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by the news of you. For I have no one like him who, notice this, pay attention here, who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. There's some words here that are making us fall back again to earlier in chapter 2 as we read that one more time. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. And I'm just remembering chapter two, verses three and four, where he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And he sees, we see right here in this painting of the picture of Timothy, one more person who's doing that who's not looking to his own interests, but the interests of everyone else. Continuing on in verse 22, he says, But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that that shortly I myself will come also. So Timothy, now we have one more picture right here. Continuing on in verse 25, he says, I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. Pausing right there. Epaphroditus was someone from the church of Philippi who the Philippian church sent to Paul with provisions, possibly with money, with food, with clothing, things that Paul would have needed. They cared about Paul. They were concerned about him being in prison. And so they sent Epaphroditus All the way from Philippi to Rome, where Paul was in prison, to care for him. He's there, he's tending to Paul's needs, and so Paul talks about sending him back. He says, I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, and fellow worker, and fellow soldier, and your messenger, and minister to my need, for he has been longing for you all, and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. So we see that Epaphroditus, when he got to Rome to take care of Paul, he became sick. And we're going to see he became really, really sick. Verse 27, indeed, he was ill near to death, but God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow, saying, God had mercy on him, and he had mercy on me, not letting him die, because he knew that one, he needed the mercy and not, not dying, but also if he would have died, man, I would have had sorrow upon sorrow in my own soul. Verse 28, he says, I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again. There's that word again, rejoice, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died The work of Christ, risking his own life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Paul paints one more picture as if it wasn't enough to give his own pictures of hey, here's ways I'm taking my eyes off of myself and putting them on Christ. As if it wasn't enough to go further than that and to say, hey, let's look at Jesus Christ who took his eyes off of himself and obeyed the commands of the Father even to death on the cross. As if all that wasn't enough, here's one more picture of two faithful servants, Timothy and Epaphroditus, who once more are taking their eyes off of themselves. Timothy, the one who would be genuinely concerned about your welfare And Epaphroditus, who almost died for the gospel mission of Jesus Christ. Two guys who are not thinking about themselves, but thinking about others and thinking about the mission of God that we are all called to. And after repeating this stuff one more time, we see Philippians 3.1, where he says this, "'Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord.'" To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. If you have been sitting in your seat and maybe might be like the Philippians who read this letter and might have thought, okay, we get it. You've said it enough. You've gone over this plenty for the last few weeks. We get it. We need to walk in humility or we need to walk in unity. We do that through humility. Paul took his eyes off of himself. We get it. You keep saying the same thing over and over every week. Paul says, for me to say the same thing over and over, it's no trouble to me. It's not tedious for me. And it's safe for you. We tend to think, okay, we've got that. Now, can we move on to something else? I need something deeper. I need something new. I need something fresh. I need a fresh word from the Lord. And Paul is just saying, actually, it's good for you if I keep saying the same things over and over. I remember when I was in Bible college back in Texas. I'm not even going to say how long ago. I can't remember how long ago. I guess I went there in 2003. Um, And when I was there, I I auditioned for the worship team. And I got on the worship team. And a a man who has significant impact in my life, Pastor Gabe Munoz, he was the worship leader there in charge of all the music ministries of the college. And uh, I got on the worship team. And I remember every Thursday night we had practice. And on our band at that Bible school, you were not allowed to have a music stand on stage. You weren't allowed to have papers on the floor. There was no iPad with notes or anything. You had to know the songs in your head and in your heart. You had to be able to get up there and sing and jump and be happy and praise without looking at notes. And so we would be on Thursday night practice. We'd be playing and learning this song. We'd do a new song and we'd play it once, twice, three times, four times, five times. You get to like time number eight and you're like, we got it, right? And he kept saying something every time over and over and over something. And he drilled into me that repetition is the best teacher. Repetition is the best teacher and I, I love this because I think Paul is combating something that we tend to feel and want. We tend to hear something and learn something or see something and go, okay, check mark, I got it. Let's move on. And rec- recognizing, Paul says, it's actually safe for you to me, for me to say these same things over and over. I want to challenge the idea that we have, or not even the idea, but kind of the hunger inside of us. To keep on finding new, better, deeper things. Paul's going, I'm saying, I've been saying it all this whole letter. I'm going to say it one more time. Rejoice in the Lord. And if you're getting tired of me talking about unity, I'm going to stop talking about it for a minute. But when we get to chapter four, I'm going to talk about it again. So go ahead and get used to the fact that a lot of these things are repeated over and over, not so we can check out, not so we can go, ugh, that again, but so we can go, wait a minute, maybe this is really important. And that time when we would have those worship practices, we'd get to the Sunday services or the Wednesday services or the retreats or the camps or whatever we had, and you had played those songs so much that when you're on stage, you're not even thinking about what your hands are doing. I could sit there and play those songs and sing and jump because we were expected to jump for the energy of those services and stuff like that. And we would do all these things. And I'm not even thinking E, B, C sharp, minor, A. I'm not thinking those things. My hands would just do it. Because of the repetition and the muscle memory, there's a part of my brain that triggered those things. Same thing that when we learn how to drive, I've talked about this before, I remember the first time when I first got behind the steering wheel of my parents' silver Dodge Grand Caravan, and my dad sat down with me in the passenger seat, and I'm getting ready to learn how to drive, and I'm responsible for the thousands of dollars that are in my hands and his life and my life that are in our hands. And he's teaching me. And he's saying, son, when you get to this point, you want to start slowly touching the brake here. You want to turn the blinker on here. All the things that I had read, I now get to start practicing. And like a teenager, I'm going, <laughs> freedom's at the door, right? And I remember there's so much like, er, and, er, and you know, taking off too fast, stopping too fast. All the mess of learning how to do it, thinking how, at what point, am I far enough, do I have two car lengths, do I have, is it time now, am I close enough, do I need to do the blinker now? And you know, I drove here this morning from Howard's Grove where my house is, and I can't remember thinking about any of that stuff. Why? Because I've done it so much that it's automatic. And I think there's a principle here for us as followers of Christ, as believers, that we study this stuff and live it out so much that hopefully the nature and character of God becomes automatic for us. The more that we get into the Word of God and then from being in the Word of God and being filled by the Spirit, that the more we walk out the things of God, the less and less we have to go, okay, now what did the Bible tell me to do about this situation? What did it, we begin to study and just consume the word of God and choose to, from what we see, walk it out. And it might start off like that teenager who's learning to drive where it's kind of awkward and uncomfortable and we're overthinking it. But hopefully as we mature in Christ, more and more and more, loving and serving others becomes, becomes more and more automatic. It begins to just come out of us. We don't have to think about it as much, that it by default, we just fall back on serving one another. And we fall back on humbling ourselves. And we just fall back. And just We don't even have to think about it like going from home to here. I'm not thinking about Blinker. I'm not thinking. I'm just by default of doing this over and over and over by repetition. Humbling myself to serve others it becomes more and more automatic. Don't grow weary of hearing the same things over and over Paul does this on purpose because he knows it takes repetition saying something over and over and over for it to sink in. Paul then, or we, we see from Paul's picture that in Philippians in this letter, he's Paul's case, then Jesus' case, then Timothy's case, then Epaphroditus' case. This repetition shows us that the life of a disciple of Jesus is a life of self-denial. The life of a disciple of Jesus is a life of self-denial. He's shown it to us in this entire letter. Now I want to take a chance really quickly to look at four different passages that for time's sake, I'm not going to flip there or ask you to flip there. We're going to have them on the screens. Four different cases of Jesus' teaching. Let's go to Matthew chapter 10 real quick. Verses 34 through 39 says this. Jesus said, do not think that I have come And follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever will lose his life for my sake will find it. Jesus is getting to like one of the most sacred corners of our heart. He's saying, if you love your family, which is what we by default love more than anyone else, if you love your family more than me, you're not worthy of me. And he goes to say, if you don't take up your cross, reminding ourselves, again, today, the cross is a cool little icon, a cool little symbol. It's fashionable. But th- this would be the equivalent of him saying, if you don't take up your death sentence, that's what it would sound like to the ears or, or to this crowd that Jesus is talking to. If you don't take up your death sentence and follow me, You're not worthy of me. He says whoever would find his life will lose it. Whoever is all about finding their life and what they're hoping for and longing for, they're going to lose it. And whoever would lose their life for my sake, they'll find it. When you stop going, oh, I got to cling on what I want and what I hope for and what I long for instead of going, I'm willing to lose that to lose whatever hopes and dreams and desires and aspirations and ambitions I might have, to let go of those things, knowing that if I do that for the sake of Jesus Christ, that, that's where we actually find our lives in Christ. Going on, Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 through 26. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, and take up his cross, that death sentence, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give and return for his soul? I love Jesus' words right there telling us. What does it profit us if we gain it all? If we get it all, I'm reminded of a a quote from Jim Carrey. We're probably all familiar with famous, rich, comedian, actor. He said one time something, I'm paraphrasing from memory here, but it was something along the lines of, I wish that everyone could have everything they ever wanted, all the money and all the things that they ever wanted, so they could have it and realize that it's not what they want. I'm messing up what he said there a little bit because it just came to my memory, but this is someone who's filthy rich, has all the fame, has everything he wants, all the accolades. He walks in the door and people go, Jim, those feelings like that, that we could want. And he says, I wish everybody could have everything they want so they could see that it's still not enough. And Jesus says, why would, if you gain it all and lose your own soul, what is it worth? Let's go on one more passage in Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 32. Jesus said, it says, now great clap, great clap, oh my goodness, crowds. Come on, tongue. Now great crowds accompanied him. And he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life. He cannot be my disciple. Now, that's a passage that a lot of people get hung up on. Wait, wait, I'm, so, I'm supposed to hate my father and mother and my brothers and sisters and hate my own self? And let's, let's interpret it in light of all scripture. We also see that we're called to um, love God and love our neighbor even as ourselves. So we see passages where, of course, we're called to love our family, love others. And if you understood um, this word hate in that culture in the context where it's presented as hate and love It was more meant to just say, love more than or love less than. And so Jesus isn't literally saying, hey, if you want to follow me, you have to hate your family. It's meant to be interpreted to say that you love Jesus more than your family in a way that's not even close. So if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Verses 31 and 32, maybe next. There we go. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. This is one more case, one more account where Jesus not only is saying, you've got to love me more than you love anyone and everything else. He's saying in doing that, you have to count the cost. You have to count the cost of following Jesus. This taking up your destiny, denying yourself, dying to yourself to follow him. And he says, if you can't do that, you're not worthy of me saying, if you cannot see that I'm worth more than all of that stuff, you're not worthy of me. One more passage, finally, Matthew 13, verses 44 through 45. This is one of my favorite verses in all of the world, in all scripture. Jesus is teaching, he says, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy... He goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. The treasure, he sold all that he had so he could buy the field and get the treasure. The merchant sold all that he had so he could buy the pearl. Let's pretend this scene here where you're the merchant and you find a place where there's this pearl of great value and you go up and you say, I I want that pearl. How much does it cost? And the guy says, well, uh, that pearl, I don't know if you've considered the worth, the value, the price of that pearl, it's going to cost you everything you've got. Okay, I'll buy it. Everything I've got. All right, well, let's start this log, this transa- transaction here. What do you have? Well, uh, you know, I've got, uh, got $10,000 in the bank. Okay, $10,000, got it. All right, it'll cost you that. What else do you have? Uh, well, that's all I have in the bank, but uh, in my wallet, let's see here. I've got, it um, uh, looks like I've got about $232. Okay, $232, uh, it'll cost you that. What else do you have? Well, that's, that's all the money I have, two hundred thirty two dollars and ten thousand dollars in the bank so no but but what else do you own where do you live oh well I mean I have a house yeah I I have a home that I live in okay it'll cost you that wait my home where am I gonna live Uh, okay well I mean I guess I could downsize Um, I guess I could learn how to live in in my camper oh you have a camper you say it's gonna cost you that too But if I don't have my home or my camper, where am I going to And I guess I could try and learn to live in my car. You have a car. All right. It's going to cost you that. And, well, then there's my wife's car. That too. Okay. Two cars. I'll take it. Dude, literally, you're... All my money, all my 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 home my my car's my I'm not going to have anything anymore and he says well well okay are you alone in life like he says well no I've got a, I've got a wife and I've got two kids it'll cost you your wife and your kids I'll take those excuse me my wife and my kids I will literally have nothing. It will cost, I will be alone at that point. And that's when the merchant says, you can now have the pearl. See, we like to think that Jesus is that part of life that can just be the garnish, that's just a little seasoning, the cherry on top of life. And we can see through all those passages that we just read that Jesus is saying, listen, I'm above it all. I cost a lot. Have you counted the cost? It'll cost you everything to follow Jesus. And I'm not saying in order to follow Jesus that you have to empty your bank account and you have to sell your house and sell your camper and your cars and give away your spouse and your kids. I'm not saying that. But it is going That $10,000 I have in the bank, that $240 I have in my wallet, that home, that camper, the cars, the family, it's actually all yours, Lord. And so what would you have me do with it? That this money that I have, what would you have me do with it? Because you gave it to me anyways, I'm just a steward. This home that you've given me, is it for my own good, my own sake, or what would you have me do with my home, Lord, for your purposes? What would you have me do with my camper, with my cars, with my family? What would you have me do with all that you have given me? Following Jesus will cost us everything. And now let's continue reading in Philippians chapter three, verse two. Paul says, he changes finally, finally, he seems to finally change the message of the letter a little bit. He says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. And he's talking about Judaizers. He's talking to the Philippian church about people who are telling him, listen, yeah, we we believe in Jesus. Maybe salvation is through Jesus, but you've also got to be circumcised and you've got to also obey the Ten Commandments and you've also got to follow all the Mosaic law He's saying, watch out for the people that are telling you that you have to have Jesus plus circumcision or Jesus plus these commandments. He's saying, listen, watch out for those dogs, those evildoers. And then he goes on to say, for we are the circumcision. Meaning, we're the ones who are really in covenant with God, who worship by the Spirit of God. Not worship by circumcision, not worship by sacrificing animals, not worship by obeying all the Mosaic law, but we worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. He's saying we're the ones who are really in, co- in, in covenant with God, not those who are saying you've got to do all these other things. But the ones who worship God in the Spirit, worship Jesus in the Spirit, the ones who glory in Christ Jesus, the ones who put no confidence in the flesh or the things that they have done, we're the ones who are really in in covenant. And he goes on verse 4 to say, Though I myself, I have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And here goes Paul through his list of all of his accomplishments and everything he's lived his whole life for up until the point of meeting Christ. He says, I have more. Verse 5, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, Blameless. Paul is saying, if there's anyone who could tote their list of all the things that they've done that should give them confidence in knowing God because of the things that they've done, he's saying, it's me. If there was someone who could sit here and show off all the things that they've done and feel like they're righteous because of the things that they've done, Paul's going, I'm that guy. I'm an Israelite, as Israelite as it can be. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews, of the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised on the eighth day. I was a Pharisee. I was so zealous for what I thought God was about that I persecuted the church. And I held the jackets of people while they stoned Stephen. He's going, I was the guy who could have confidence in what I've done. And here we go into my favorite verses in all of Scripture. Verse 7, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things. Sounds kind of similar to what we read earlier. I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ, the treasure in the field, the pearl of the great price. All the things that Paul had placed his confidence in. You have to recognize and realize Paul wasn't just listing off a list of achievements and accomplishments in his life. When he's going through all those things, those are the things that he had given every single bit of his focus and energy and time and resources to. He had given his entire life to all that stuff on the list. So when, in the road to Damascus, in the book of Acts, When he falls off of his horse at meeting Jesus, his life was going in this direction and investing all of his hope in these things that he had done. And then he meets Jesus and he recognizes all this stuff that I've been giving my whole life to is actually worthless. He calls it rubbish. Some other translations say garbage or even dog dung is more accurate for the Greek word that we have there. Now, I don't know about you, because we've been sitting here and we're talking about the cost. And there is great cost. It does cost you everything. But when you think about garbage, I have never been putting the garbage together, pull it out of the waste bin, and had this emotional struggle of what I was letting go of. I've never been like... If I'm going to be a good husband, I got to let go of this stuff cuz my wife told me to take out the trash. It just that banana peel was special. It was like it was it was a special one, sentimental value to me. And all those diapers. I just don't know that I can let go of those. It's garbage like get it out of my house it's not a struggle paul is saying all those things that were so important to me i count them as garbage next to knowing christ that anything and everything we could look at in our life of supreme value and worth pursuing jesus or paul is saying next to knowing christ It's taking out the trash. It's garbage next to knowing Jesus. Is there a great cost? Yeah, there is. See, following Jesus will cost you everything. But you gain Jesus. Following Jesus, that's our bottom line this week. Following Jesus will cost you everything. But you gain Jesus. And it's unfortunate that we have a Christianity today that allows us to be all caught up in all the things that Christianity is and Christianity entails and look at the lifestyle of the Christian and all the things that God could give us and not see Jesus as the treasure in the field. Guys, if we come here every Sunday and we sing the songs that move our heartstrings or tug on our heartstrings, and if we hear a message that makes us feel all nice and inspired, and if we see our brothers and sisters and we say, How's it going? and we do all this stuff, and if we serve, and if we're part of different programs, and if we're participating in all this different stuff, and we don't see it as a means to getting Christ, we haven't seen the treasure. We haven't seen the pearl. And we're going through the same religious check marks and things that Paul did. To where I really empathize and resonate with what Paul said when he's going, I did this and this and this and this. I'm like, I was born a pastor's kid. Literally. The first day of my life. We left the hospital and my parents went to church because my dad had to preach. And so mom was nursing me in his office. Day one, I'm in church. I can go check and then beyond that, growing up in children's church, real quick, I got put on the puppet team because I was special. And then beyond that, when I was 13 years old, dad put me on the worship team playing the guitar. And then I went to Bible school, and I wasn't even finished with Bible school, in the college that I went to, they put me on the ministry team for the camps and retreats. And then after that, when I started working there, they put me, after not very long, they put me on the, the faculty at the Bible school. And I'm starting to teach Bible school students and I'm preaching and teaching to thousands of kids and teens every summer for seven years. I did this and all these things and I'm sitting here climbing this ladder of man, man, I don't know about you guys, but I'm pretty special. Jesus must look at me and go, I'm glad I got a good one there. Just like Paul, I'm putting before that point, putting all my confidence in all the things that I had done. And then when I was 26, I was confronted with the mirror to go, no, actually, you have a really wicked heart. And your only hope as if Jesus saves you and changes that heart. You might have everyone else fooled, and you might have everyone else thinking that you're super spiritual, and you love Jesus. We know nobody's perfect, but Stephen, man, he's pretty dang close. I could have everyone thinking that, but I myself knew what was in my heart, and God knew. Hebrews tells us that all things are naked before his eyes. There's nothing unseen. And I was placing my confidence and my hopes in all the things that I had done just like Paul until the point where I realized, no, I'm wicked and my only hope is actually Jesus. And I could sit here and preach it and talk it, but now I've got to come up to confessing my sin and confronting it and acknowledging that I'm just as bad as anyone else and my only hope is Jesus Christ. If your hope is in the things you've done, then you have no hope. If your hope for eternity and your hope as a Christian, is in your church attendance, in your Bible study, and your devotional, and how much you pray, and in how many times you've helped sweet little ladies cross the street and carry out their groceries and volunteered at the shelter and participated in this ministry and given this much to this church and to this charity and doing all these good things, if your hope is in the things you have done, you have no hope. You're looking at yourself and you're trying to be righteous by the things you do. And I don't say this like that because it was me for 26 years of my life and guess what? I have to confront myself every day because I tend to believe it about myself again. I tend to think I can be good enough to be righteous and I have to preach the gospel to myself every single day because I need it every day just like Martin Luther said. If your hope is in things you've done, you have no hope. I remember when I first moved here and I was part-time on staff at the church and uh, I was uh, here for a little over a year, and things began getting serious with Katie, who is now my wife, and I'm going, man, if I'm really going to take care of this girl, and if I really want to show her dad that I'm going to take care of her, uh, I need to, I'm going to do a little bit more than just my part-time at the church, and so I got another part-time job working third shift at Bemis making toilet seats, woo-hoo, and I remember while I was there, uh, there was a night, I'd been there for about a month working there, and it got out, you know what I'm talking about? It finally got out. Someone asked, So, what else do you do? Oh, here we go. I'm a pastor. Oh. It's so funny how the conversations change. It's so crazy how the vocabulary becomes so much more limited. This happens on the golf course, it happens out in the community people hear that you're a pastor and it's like oh snap and I was like, but listen don't change for me don't say things different for me and I remember there was this one night I was working with a guy that he had just found out as a pastor and he said he said oh man yeah you know one day I was working with there's a lady who used to work here and she said you know she was one of them born agains that's us that's what they call us You know, she was one of them born-agains, and she said to me, you know, she was telling me I had to be born again, and I said, lady, listen. Listen. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. How do you think I know that stuff? I was baptized. I went through catechism. I was confirmed. You know what he was reading out to me, what he was declaring to me? If anyone can have confidence in the flesh, I, all the more, He was declaring his hopes for eternity. And before we go that denomination or that sect, we do the same thing. We do the same thing. I raised my hand and repeated the prayer. I was baptized. I went through the next move. I'm there every Sunday. And we're placing our confidence and our hope in the things we do rather than the it is finished of the cross. Jesus' work on the cross. See, following Jesus will cost you everything, but you gain Jesus. See, discipleship, which is what we're called to. Remember, Jesus said, You're not worthy of being my disciple earlier. Discipleship is not a more than Jesus, it's not Jesus plus circumcision or Jesus plus church attendance or whatever. It's not more than Jesus, it's more of Jesus. If you want to grow as a disciple of Jesus Christ, the question is not, okay, I've got Jesus, now what else? What more do I need? It's how much more of Jesus can I have? If you think that you've capped out on Jesus, you're fooling yourself. That's where we keep on reading in Philippians chapter 3, verse 12, Paul says, not that I have already obtained this, Or am already perfect. Again, this is the guy who could say, if I've got it, if anyone's figured it out, if anyone's achieved it, it's me. The guy who could say that. He says, Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus and let those of us who are mature think this way and if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have obtained. Paul's saying, this is what I am straining. He's at the end of his life. He knows he's about to die. He's in prison. God has shown him he's about to check out, and he's still saying, I haven't achieved it. I haven't attained it, but I'm straining forward, and I'm pressing on towards what? The upward call of God in Christ Jesus, that I might know him, and the power of his resurrection that all the check marks mean nothing everything that was so valuable to me everything that i had given my entire life towards is garbage i count it as loss for the sake of knowing christ and that's my goal that's my pursuit i'm pressing on towards this vision of christ and if we attend and we participate and we take notes and do all this stuff, and it's not a means to the goal of knowing Jesus Christ more and more and more and more, it is only going to be serving self-righteousness within our hearts. And that's where, when Jesus is the goal, you live in light of eternity. That's what we see here in Paul saying, all these things, I'm, I'm, I'm letting them be behind me and I'm pressing forward towards the goal. Jesus is the goal. Jesus is the goal, knowing him, gaining him. And if all we're looking at in Christianity is the things that we have to do, and if all we're looking at is that cost, and the cost is real, the cost is real. Real. The cost is significant. The cost is great. The the treasure caused the person to sell everything they had to go get the field. The the pearl of great price caused the merchant to sell everything he had so he could get the pearl. But there's two parts of that story. It is the selling everything that they had, but it was so that they could gain the treasure, and that's what Paul's saying here. I counted all loss that I might gain Christ. There's an old hymn that you may or may not know that lately has become my new favorite song. And I've heard it many times and maybe you have, maybe you haven't. I want to read just the first verse of this song to you and then we're going to sing it. Be thou my vision. It says this. Be thou my vision. Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. Not be all else to me, save that thou art, meaning nothing else be everything to me. Let nothing be my everything except you, Jesus. Not be all else to me, save that thou art. I love this line. Thou my best thought by day or by night. That we have no better thought in our brain than Jesus. You're my best thought. And when I see that, and I think about Jesus is my best thought. How many thoughts do I give to Jesus? Wasting thoughts on something that, that is not the best thought. Thou my best thought by day or by night. All time, you're my best thought. Waking or sleeping, thy presence my light. If you know the song, feel free to sing along. Either way, let the words of this song be a call to have a Jesus-centered vision because the temptation is that we could say, wow, look at Paul, how great he was, that he could live this way. And that's not what he would want. He would, it's not, wow, look, what kind of pa- guy was Paul? How great is Paul that he could do that? It ought to make us go, man, how great is Jesus that he would cause Paul to see that everything else is lost. Be thou my vision.